Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right, it's still me. Uh, kiddos, we do not, do we have Elevate this morning? We do have Elevate this morning. And uh, kids, if you would like to go, that's first and second grade. Um, looks like Mr. Scott's in there. Hopefully it was with Mr. Barrett. All right. And if, if somebody else wants to grab those doors, those kids get loud. And uh, we need our privacy. We need, we need some time. Um, all right, uh, so I'm just going to tell you right off the bat here, this morning is kind of a continuation of last week where I got through one of four points, and I'm going to try to get through the other three points this morning, and I thought, oh, this is awesome, I've got my sermon already written, and I don't know if you've ever written something down and then had a week, uh, week to think about it and ponder over it and look at how much you missed and how much more you need to add and how much, so this week was just kind of like, ugh. Uh, nevertheless, we're going to make attempts, and there's going to be a billion things that we don't talk about this morning that you may want to, uh, that may come up, and uh, I'll tell you, if you have any questions or thoughts or want to know more, there's some really good resources out there when it comes to marriage and gender and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, so, um, <clears throat> I'm going to start this morning with a quote. Uh, My advice to people today is as follows. If you take the game of life seriously, if you take your nervous system seriously, if you take your sense, of, uh, your sense organs seriously, if you take energy process seriously, you must turn on, tune in, and drop out. Anybody, know, anybody recognize those words? Marty, you do? Timothy Leary. Very good. Timothy Leary uttered these words. He was a a psychologist. He may have been the head of the psychology department at Harvard. Uh, And he took a trip to Mexico uh, one time where he experienced what he would call magic mushrooms. Uh, And then he would begin to strongly advocate for the use of hallucinogenic drugs, also known as LSD, for freeing the mind. And he would eventually be relieved of his job at Harvard. But that would not cease to be the end of his influence. Leary uttered these words. Uh, He went on to be a very influential voice in the summer of 1967, known as the Summer of Love. It was not 1969, it was 1967. That's for us youngins. It just feels so good to say that. These words he delivered uh, at a gathering in January of 67, actually before the Summer of Love, at what was called the Human Be-In. See, things have not changed that much. Um, This was uh, in uh, a gathering of almost 30,000 people in the Haight-Asbury district in uh, San Francisco. And this would kind of ignite this fire that would build toward this coming summer of 67. It was, there were attempts at planning it, but, but what actually took place was far beyond what anybody could, ex- could, ex- uh, could have expected. 
the San Francisco Chronicle, which is a local, uh, local paper, said this. This is a new concept of celebrations beneath the human underground must emerge, must become conscious and be shared so that a revolution can be formed with a renaissance of compassion, awareness, and love and the revelation of unity for all mankind. These celebrations and gatherings were earmarked with sense, uh, sentiments of anti-war, this is uh, during Vietnam, anti-war, anti-establishment, anti-materialism, and, and it did involve a great deal of hallucinogenic drugs, free love, communal living, and a general tone of dropping out. Now, it would, it would produce some change in attitudes and some new ways of looking at things. It also produced some great music, um, perhaps uh, none better than uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney's uh, hit that came out in July, All You Need Is Love. It talked against blind loyalty to the government and consumeristic living. And at its height, not height, height, uh, just so you know, I learn grammar as we go, it is not height, ever. You're welcome. I get told that every time. Um, at its height, over 100,000 people de uh, deemed as hippies gathered around Golden State Park in San Francisco and lived and loved and freed their minds. Local residents had to work very, very hard along with various organizations, including a lot of local churches, when people just from across the country just went to San Francisco. And they had to provide housing, food, clothing, medical care, as well as arts and activities and concerts. October of 1967, there was a funeral held for the Summer of Love to take the revolution back home and live it out. Um, the conclusion of the Summer of Love, the, the, the results were mixed uh, at best. Certainly, there were a number of cultural assumptions and traditional views that were shaken, um, potentially even some for good, opening your eyes and seeing uh, some abuses that had taken place and some manipulation. But there were other results uh, that are not mentioned as much that were much less than ideal. Uh, many of those who had dropped out simply re-enrolled. <laughs> they went back and, uh, and they went back to college or high school or they went home and they, they got a job. Um, and many, many would simply return to normal conformity, but, but many didn't and not in a good way. The homeless population of San Francisco skyrocketed. Throughout the summer, the words free love mixed with hallucinogenic drugs almost gave uh, an enabling to many men who simply took advantage of women. And the trail of drug addiction from the summer of love was enormous. America has had a long conflicted relationship with institutions, with laws, with economic systems. We have a tendency to, to I don't know if you know this uh, as, as Americans, we have a tendency to have highly elevated views of ourselves. And yet, we also combine that with this kind of 
overdone self-loathing. We are the best. We are exceptional. We are the worst. We are terrible. Um, And Western concepts of freedom and self-expression and the rights of the individual above all else can really make it difficult for us to understand a Mosaic law that is delivered to a people, a people that do not see themselves as individuals, that always see themselves as a whole, and what it looks like to live in obedience to God and giving yourself not only just to him, but also to a people. Um, And yet, what was radical in the Mosaic Law was rights for individuals. That's not something that they had a good concept of. The Summer of Love was all about self-indulgence. God's call to his people, especially when it comes to the, comes to the things we're going to talk about this morning, institution of marriage uh, and the church, uh, is more about self-awareness turned to sacrificial love than it is about self-indulgence. So today we're going to try to continue on from last week and look at these laws Uh, These laws are primarily given in Deuteronomy 22, uh, and most of them, I went through them last week, so I'm not going to try to go through them again, but most of them deal with marriage and the rights of divorce, and when you have to marry, uh, if you can can remember a little bit from last week, um, there are calls for accountability, Uh, there are calls, uh, warnings against uh, unfaithfulness and infidelity, Uh, but there's also, there is a unique call in some of these laws where uh, women were called, if a man took advantage of a woman, he had to marry her and provide for her, and she was not as accountable to the role of marriage as he was. So we're going to get into all that. That didn't come out as nearly as well as I wanted it to. He was held accountable to provide for her, which is what marriage was a lot of oftentimes for women in, in ancient days. She was not held as much to, the, to, the, uh, to her calls within the institution of marriage. So um, I'm going to try to keep, this, there's so much in here this morning, and my brain is, is functioning uh, in weird ways. The laws in Deuteronomy would give financial and physical protection to women. The rights of divorce, the penalties for unfaithfulness in marriage and sexual misconduct, were applied equally regardless of gender or economic position, which is actually radical. We take that for granted in our day, but it's actually a radical concept. Uh, And so a brief overview and recap of what we talked about last week, we put this in certain context last week, uh, is what we saw is anything that is good and powerful can also be dangerous. The summer of love and experiencing free love and just being and being with other people is there's an element of that, that, that there's an element of goodness and appeal in that, and then it became very, very dangerous. And so what we ultimately looked at last week when we talked about sex, we looked at the, how God designed sex to be good and that it is powerful, but it is not everything and it is not nothing. And without restraints, it, it can become dangerous. Just like anything else, God describes himself to Moses when he appears in the desert. God appears as a, uh, as a consuming fire. Fire can provide light, and it can provide warmth, but without restraint, fire can destroy. Anything good that is powerful um, needs 
boundaries. It needs parameters. And so what we see on display in Deuteronomy is both, is really the warnings and the designated protection within a covenant of marriage when it comes to sex. And so that's what we looked at last week. And in a committed relationship, in a covenantal relationship, it's designed to re-enter uh, this creation narrative of what it is to be naked and without shame. That to be vulnerable in marriage is hallowed ground, but even in marriage it needs work and effort and vulnerability and security and trust to become what it was designed to be. Uh, now, moving on this week, we're going to talk about marriage and women and men. And this gets tricky because all of these things kind of bleed in together. So, uh, uh, yeah, so we're going to hope this we're going to hope this makes sense and goes clear. It feels a bit disjointed in my mind, but uh, bear with me. <clears throat> Marriage in the ancient world, obviously, it was not much about uh, love as often, as much as it was about survival, as much as it was about uh, familial business transactions between families, furthering a lineage, uh, a lineage, uh, all that type of stuff. Ancient Israel, however, had a had a heavier connotation when it came to the concept of marriage. Uh, it is a marriage in uh, Israel seen as a covenant between two people. Um, and actually that it's more of a covenant between two families as it would often play out. But as God describes his relationship with marriage, what God says is that he would, you ready for a big word? That God anthropomorphizes, uh, takes on the role of a human, uh, if I, I, my rabbi friend, we got into a discussion about this one time, and she talked about how much uh, God anthropomorphizes in the Old Testament and takes on the form of a human. And I was like, we have a concept of that. Um, <clears throat> but God takes on the role of a husband. Hosea, it actually says, God takes on the role of a husband and Israel his bride. And we see how much uh, that he becomes the husband of a very unfaithful wife. So marriage has a heavy connotation. God is often described in Israel uh, as their husband. Um, when we look at Deuteronomy, what we see in Deuteronomy 22, there's a whole lot of rights of protection. How we see the law here is important. Uh, I had a friend in college. We, we, I went to a small Baptist college, and uh, I had a friend, we were playing intramural basketball, and he got hit in the finger. And uh, you know that pop? Like, everybody feel it? When you hear the pop and you're like, that didn't land well, right? One of the fingers was in just a little bit too much and it jammed. And you heard that pop loud on a pass. And he let fly with an obscenity. Well, again, this is a small Christian school and you can't let fly with obscenities. Uh, and so the ref gave him a technical to which my friend, it was almost like a miraculous healing uh, that his knowledge of the rule book overcame his pain. And he immediately went from that to, no, 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 no. You can cuss if you get hurt. It's in the rule book. Check it out. You can cuss if you get hurt. And I was like, he's better. <laughs> this is glorious. This is amazing. <clears throat> the law of Israel, we have to be careful with how we look at it. These are not technicalities for us to try to work around and find loopholes of what we can get away with. Um, <clears throat> and there are general laws in Deuteronomy that have more to do with the rights of women. Uh, especially in Deuteronomy, it's less about the beauty of marriage 
and more about defending the rights of, uh, defending the rights of women uh, and those without cultural power. To see the beauty of marriage, we see it in Genesis 2 where it's originally defined for God's people that this is a reason a man will leave his father and mother and will hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Every marriage, that I, every marriage ceremony that I perform, I go through this, that this is God's design. Marriage is what God came up with and that marriage is important and so it's a call to a new identity. Leave this family and become a new family. And so marriage uh, is important in that way. It's permanent. The call to hold fast. There is a sense of permanence there. To, uh, to hold together, it's not about feelings, it is about a commitment. Uh, if you've ever listened to vows in a marriage ceremony, they, they, what they say is, I will love you even, even when, in sickness and in health, when things are going well and when things are going poorly. Um, I will love you even then. And then marriage is to be intimate. <clears throat> Uh, that, uh, that they are, um, that the two will become one flesh. That naked and without shame, the mingling of souls. And this is, this is the covenant commitment that God makes with his people, and this is how God defines marriage to be. Now, as you go throughout history, marriage develops more and more and more, and you see it in various cultures. Um, in Greek culture, Marriage, in, in Jesus' day, marriage was certainly more about business and the aristocracy. It was simply appropriate to be, marriage, to be married. And it was monogamous with very loose meanings. Monogamy in ancient, Gre in, 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 uh, ancient Greece <clears throat> mostly meant that you just had one wife at a time. And then you could have concubines, you could have whatever else, whatever else, whatever else. So monogamy was a pretty loose definition. Um, in ancient Greece. What we do see about <clears throat> marriage um, in, in multiple cultures throughout history is it rarely favored women. It was, there was, a, there was a lot of potential for abuse uh, for women. New Testament marriage is given a glorious new image uh, because of the gospel, because of the work of Jesus, Paul writes in Ephesians, and this is not the part of this passage that we focus on very much, that a man would leave, uh, would, should love his wife as Christ loved the church and give himself up for her. Now we hear that and we're like, yeah. This is the same Greek world that allowed, this is the same world that allowed Greek men and uh, the, the aristocrat, aristocrats, this is the second time I did that, uh, to have a monogamous wife to go to parties and dinner parties with and then have very little else to do with her, but she had better remain faithful. He was allowed to do whatever he wanted. And that certainly wasn't just the Greek world. In Deuteronomy, marriage is not painted as this beautiful picture. Paul, Paul, really expounds on that in a, in a beautiful way. But in the giving of the law, we see God committing himself in an exclusive relationship with Israel and giving himself up for his bride. In the ancient world, marriage functioned... For, for women, uh, marriage was about often about financial security 
Uh, and familial security for men, it was about being able to reproduce and have babies and, and provide a lineage. And it wasn't about having children to love and care for, it was about having children for future laborers and an heir to continue on uh, the, the family business, whatever it might be. Again, there was often more at stake for women. Um, and these laws actually function to protect women, to protect those in a cultural disadvantage in Deuteronomy. We look at them now, it's a danger to look at these laws in Deuteronomy strictly from our perspective and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. We have to enter back into that world where women essentially had no rights uh, and this law is designed to protect them. Um, it limited men from taking advantage of a woman to, just to get her dowry. Jesus talks about uh, divorce. We'll actually get to that next year in um, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when Jesus talks about how, when, when the guys are arguing with him about how, well, Moses said you could give a certificate of divorce. A certificate of divorce. So in this day, it was kind of running rampant. A man could actually, even in, in Hebrew culture, a man could uh, marry a woman, divorce her on Monday so as not to commit adultery, marry another woman on Wednesday and have relations, divorce her on Thursday and have his original wife back who culturally would be obligated to come back to him uh, by the weekend. And so when Moses puts a certificate of divorce on the line, it is not to say just get divorced whenever you want. It is, there is now a record. She is freed and is not obligated. She is not his property. Um, he can't just do whatever he wants. Do whatever he wants. It was to slow down uh, this abuse of women. Um, and yet, still advocate for the protection, the exclusivity, and the longevity of marriage. <clears throat> As time and history develop and uh, progress, marriage itself is not is less necessary for the survival of women. Um, and in many cultures, it is still recognized as a societal good, uh, but it was not the be-all, end-all. And so here, what I want to make known, and we see this uh, as we get closer to the New Testament, there is not a command in Scripture that everyone must be married. Um, as evangelical, and I'm going to use that term with lots of caveats, uh, but um, I, I want to repent for the ways that evangelicalism has made marriage almost like the, the next step of maturity. Nowhere in Scripture does it mandate marriage. <clears throat> um, in fact, Paul, uh, Paul prizes singleness for faithfulness in ministry and service to Jesus. Marriage is holy. It is not holier. Are you with me on that? Um, singleness is also holy. And again, Paul advocates for singleness, <clears throat> if you can. But for those of us who are not as strong, Paul tells us that marriage is good. It is ordained by God. It does function as a cultural 
good very much, but I want to make sure that we are aware that it is not essential for being a follower of Jesus. You are not somehow lesser than. Um, in the New Testament, marriage looks, in, in a very pressed and intimate way, it looks very similar of what it is to be part of the church at large, but certainly more intensified. Uh, to be in a commitment for the good of the other. In the New Testament, marriage is not about finding the person that is going to fulfill all of your needs. It is about finding the person who will join you and encourage you and challenge you in your pursuit of trusting Jesus and how both members of a marriage will do what they can to help their spouse become the best that they can be in trusting and following Jesus. Three verses that Paul writes to women in Ephesians 5 uh, that they should submit to their own husbands. Now, give me a minute. I'm going to talk about that. Um, and then he's going to write nine verses to men on loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And we can get really upset about these passages. We can really misstate them and misunderstand them. We can abuse them. We can get mad at them. We can just say, ah, Paul was sexist and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, what we, what, when we fail in interpreting these, these, we often fail by pitting one against the other, which is exactly what Genesis 3 does. It pits one against the other. When we see them as redemptive and whole, we see them as this is how we enter into a marriage covenant for the other person. In the New Testament, marriage is a picture of the gospel. Uh, it is not about self-fulfillment. It's about sacrificial love. Um, it is about finding a person that is going to disappoint you. Okay? Now, I know we don't include that in many wedding ceremonies. Um, but it is finding a person that will disappoint you. And yet, you are called to love them and help them uh, and encourage them to feel loved and secured and seen and able to trust God. Marriage helps us see our deficiencies and our need for repentance. It helps us to recognize that the world was not designed and created and all of eternity has existed up to this point to give us me. All of a sudden you have to care for somebody else and in a very intense way put their needs above yours. And then you have kids, which God bless them, are black holes of need. Never to be satisfied. Um, but this is not on parenting. And you may think, you may hear that about marriage, and you may go, that's impossible. It's impossible for me to love somebody and put all of their needs above mine. You are correct. Which is why marriage will reveal to you almost faster than anything that you are not designed to be a savior. And your spouse is not designed to be a savior. What marriage will reveal to you is your need for a savior. It, marriage can be enjoyed and it takes a lot of hard work. <clears throat> now, quickly, the barriers on that. God's desire is that relationships are good and trusted. Uh, he hates when relationships are broken, but he does allow in the Mosaic Law that those for abuse, 
uh, and for certain reasons can, th that this covenant can be disintegrated. Not lightly, but certainly. Um, deciding on what of this to go through. Uh, when one or both persons in a marriage covenant has no interest in living in, into the covenant of marriage, there is a time that God does allow uh, that to be broken. And, and, and he actually gives uh, rights to both men and women and slaves, regardless of economic position and gender, the, there are equal rights that prevented this from just being easy or uh, manipulative or even more abusive in, the, in divorce. When it comes to women, ancient laws, in the ancient Mosaic law, which is distinct from other laws for sure, protects women from a whole lot of things that we would take for granted in our day. Uh, abandonment, rape, false accusation, fraud, starvation, poverty. Men could not just make up uh, a reason uh, to divorce their wife whenever they felt like it. These arguments are still going on in Jesus' day. Uh, Hillel basically is a rabbi in Jesus' day that says essentially you could get divorced if the chicken is dry. Um, and <clears throat> he was the popular one because of course he was. And when I say you could get divorced, men could get divorced. Uh, Shammai was a little bit more conservative and said, no, 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 it needs to be a grave violation of the marriage covenant. Everybody liked Hillel. Men, men liked Hillel. Um, but this ancient law, what it was designed for is to prevent these abuses, um, usually of women. So uh, that's when marriage can be broken down. Now, um, how does marriage play into the idea of gender? Uh, I'm a firm believer in reading the first three chapters of every book that I own. I have a bookshelf full of books that I've read at least the first three chapters of. Uh, the first three chapters should set the tone. You should get a view of what the whole story is going to be about, and the Bible is no different. Uh, when we go back to Genesis 1, what we see in Genesis 1 is that men and women are made in the image of God. They are both made equal in the image of God. Uh, there are biological distinctions, for sure, but they are both image bearers of God. In the image of God, he made him, male and female, he made them. When we get to Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is where we rebel, we rebel against God and cease to trust him. <clears throat> we see that these biological distinctions that were given to men and women, to men and women, now become like ground one the, 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 the base level uh, that the enemy uses for cases of abuse and mistrust of these relationships. What was meant to design, what was designed to operate in harmony now gets pitted against each other. And that's primarily through gender. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is not God's definition of marriage. This is the curse. And so we see those abuses come to bear. <clears throat> what Deuteronomy attempts to do is to um, remind us 
of Genesis 1 and 2, even in the midst of a Genesis 3 world, to put boundaries uh, in place in the midst of rebellion. So women, uh, all right, women, you are image bearers of God. You are direct image bearers of God. Uh, when we get to the New Testament, Paul will write in Galatians, in Christ, there is no male, female, Greek or Jew, slave or free. Everyone who is in Christ receives the rights of the firstborn son. This is not an undoing of biological gender. <clears throat> it is an undoing of cultural hierarchies and any other preferences that take root in Genesis 3. It's a reminder that Genesis 1 and 2 will stand and one day be renewed over and above Genesis 3. Women, you have in inherent value and dignity and worth. You are created good by God. There's nothing lacking in you that you should feel lesser than, nor uh, a lie about God that would say that you are lesser than and so in, in some way produce a measure of bitterness. Men, children, wealth, success do not complete you. Women, before you are a role of wife, mom, daughter, anything, uh, employee, you are loved by God, fully bearing his image. Now, um, Paul brings this uh, sermon-wise, we're talking about gender in the context of marriage, and Paul brings this into play uh, in marriage um, in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 is one of the most misapplied passages ever. 5, 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, uh, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I want to cover this rather quickly, but I want to give some, li uh, some light here. Um, there's a book uh, by Kathy Keller called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles that I would highly commend to you. It's an e-book. It's an easy read. It's short. Uh, you're welcome to read it. You're welcome to disagree with it. I think it's uh, fantastic. Um, but first thing here is this. Paul says, wives submit to your own husbands. He does not say women submit to men. And the second is, and this is most important, Submission is a dirty word in our culture. Uh, none of us, uh, we, we will argue about it. It's hard for us to even potentially see past this. But submission does not mean coercion. It is not something that can be forced or demanded. Submission is, can only be given. It is an act of the will. And for a woman... In marriage, this comes from a position of power. It is a gift that you alone can give. It does not mean that you do not have a voice. It does not mean that you are lesser than. Um, in Genesis, God calls Eve a helper. In Psalms, God will call himself that very same word, a helper. The role of a helper in marriage is this 
to help your husband be the best man, the best father, the best follower of Jesus that he can be. That you are in this for his good. And so when your husband does well, uh, if you're married, if your husband does well, you encourage that and welcome that and, and fan that into flame. But also, when he does not do well, if he is uh, acting in destructive ways toward himself or toward you or toward others, then you oppose him in that. There's an age-old question. If a husband is abusing his wife, does the wife go back to him because she's just supposed to submit and go back to him? No. You call the police. You oppose him. Because that's not good for you. It's not good for him. It's certainly not good for your marriage. You oppose him in that. That's what the call is to be a helper is, but you oppose him for his good. Um, In everyday life, in less extreme examples, what this means is that you have the power to help your husband be better. Submission is a a willful decision that says, I can do a lot of things but I decide to be for you. Men, when it comes to this command in marriage, a few things. Um, The marriage commands are really where the only place that we see the commands in Scripture that have gender qualifications by and large, especially in the New Testament. The, all of the other commands that we get as a follower of Jesus, uh, to be gentle, to be humble, to be filled with the Spirit, those are given to everybody. Um, and uh, they're equally applied to every follower of Jesus. There is a current debate on um, masculinity, and I don't know if you've seen or heard or listened to any of this. The idea of masculinity, the idea of toxic masculinity. Um, and uh, I read a thread the other day that was incredibly helpful in dissecting the breakdown of this kind of Wild West view of uh, masculinity. Scripture, uh, in the marriage laws and in other places, the call of masculinity is to go from boyhood to manhood. It is to go from immaturity of a child to the maturity of an adult. to take responsibility, to be accountable, to be honest in confession, to be humble, to be settled in the faith, not to be thrown here and there. Uh, There are and have always been cultural gender roles that really don't have much to do with scripture. They have a lot to do with culture. That these are not biblical calls of masculinity. A hundred years ago, pink was a masculine color. There are cultures throughout the world where men, friends, hold hands, and it's very common. Um, Women can like sports. Praise God. Men can like poetry. Praise God. These are cultural preferences. These are not biblical mandates. Scripture calls men to maturity to growing past boyhood. This is not simply a call for men to not be like women. Does that make sense? 
There's an argument in our day that masculinity for men is to really, really, really not be like women. Shoot things, grow beards, ride horses in the wild, wild west, whatever. Listen, those are fine, but that is not what defines you as masculinity, as masculine. And in this realm, we are tempted often to confuse cultural gender norms with a biblical call to maturity. Scripture calls men to act like men, but that is a call to maturity and humility and accountability. The problem that I often run into with this is the tactics that are used in calling men to be masculine are often used with the maturity of a boy. If you have to go around telling everybody how masculine, how masculine you are, that is insecurity. That is not masculinity. That is also not maturity. Men, we are called to maturity, not name-calling, um, not throwing fits, not hurling insults. Nowhere in Scripture is that called masculinity or maturity. I'm six foot two and a half. I don't have to walk around telling people I'm tall. To be settled in your faith, to grow in maturity, is to be able to embrace that with humility, to be accountable for that. If you see people or encounter people that go around and are telling everybody just how masculine they are, just be aware that that is often a sign of immaturity and insecurity. You don't have to weapon that against them. You can say, hey man, it's okay. It's okay. There is a call in marriage for men to headship. And if we're suspicious about the word submission in our day, you better believe that we are suspicious about the idea of headship or authority. Um, we, there are movements in our day where we see every relationship almost exclusively through the lens of who has power. Uh, and that has not made us more loving. It has made us more suspicious. Ephesians 5, love your wives as Christ loved the church. This is a call to headship uh, that is about accountability. And you have to keep reading. And he gave himself up for her. Men, you are willfully using whatever measure of power or authority, culturally, physically, whatever it might be, not for personal gain, but to actually give it up for your wife. As he says, as Christ loved the church, washing over her, uh, making her beautiful to present her without spot or wrinkle. I think it's also important, men, because you get beat up too. Men, you cannot be the savior of your wife. You are called to love her as Christ has loved you, as you've experienced the love of Jesus. So your first calling also is to be dependent and need Jesus. Men, you need help. We need help. The goal of Christian maturity is not self-sufficiency. We need help. We need help from our wives. So ask. 
We need help from other men, so ask. We need help from Jesus. To wash over with confidence and hope and trust. Uh, to wash over your spouse, your wife, with confidence, to hope and trust, and remind her often that she bears the image of God and that she is loved by God. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. There's a, there's a book by a guy named Gary Thomas. I've never read it. <laughs> it's that good. Uh, the title of the book is Sacred, Sacred Marriage. Um, but the tagline of the book is All I've Needed to Read. And the tagline of the book says, What if God designed marriage not to make us, not just to make us happy, but to make us holy? And a friend of mine handed me the book. He said, Have you read this? And I was like, I just did. I don't need to open it at all. He gave it all away right there. I'm sure the things I haven't thought of, but I will. Um, <clears throat> the design of marriage in God's economy is not about personal fulfillment and happiness. It is about learning our need ever deeper for sacrificial love and our calling to sacrificially love our spouse. And then, from that, also learning how to love others. Um, there are ways to engage in discussions and sermons and difficult topics like this that are just not helpful. Uh, I, I, and this is what's been throwing me all morning, is uh, I spend half my sermons and 90% of my prep time trying to think of what am I saying that I'm not saying? What am I not saying here? Or what needs to be said? Or how do I clarify this? Uh, and it's important. I think it is important, but it can be exhausting. I think to have ears to hear in these areas that we've covered the last two weeks, ears, the areas of sex, marriage, gender, uh, and, and these are certainly hot topic issues in our day. I mean, this is the root of what takes place in Genesis 3. Things that are supposed to operate like this become like this. Uh, and the danger for us is we can hear these in defensiveness. We can hear these in pride. We can hear these solely through a lens of tradition that puts us in a pretty good position, maybe, but maybe it's not quite biblical. We can interpret laws the way we want them. We can hear this in a, in a way that either makes us defensive or prideful. Um, <clears throat> it, can, it can expose our wounds it can deepen our suspicions, or it can reinforce our self-righteousness, right? So if a man listens to Ephesians 5.22, women submit to your own husbands, and a guy, and you hear, amen, there's something going on there, right? At the same time, we can listen to this sermon. If you're married, you can listen to this sermon on behalf of your spouse, right? Did you hear that? Did you hear that one? Are you paying attention here? You can walk out of here, and the first thing you say is, man, I hope you listened. Um, <clears throat> there are ways to listen to these that are just not helpful. The hope of the gospel is this, that we are loved and freed, that we are so loved by God, and that our growth and maturity in that helps us to know more and more. We are so loved by Jesus that we are actually free to give of ourselves for the good of someone else. 
that we can actually love them as much as we love ourselves, that we can worry about their nourishment and care and growth and security as much as we worry about our own. Chris Wright, who wrote a phenomenal book, The Mission of God's People and The Everyday Mission of God's People, which is for people like us that like books that are a little bit smaller and not books like this, but he asks a great question in there. He said, when the mission of God changes the question from what's in this for me to what's in me for this. So there's a whole lot uncovered here. Um, and again, the biggest temptation in our day is to believe the lies about God. Gender, marriage, uh, all of these are right where the enemy attacks us right off the bat. Um, And uh, after talking through sermon stuff this week with my friend Kayla Smith, she offered some wonderful insight. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it. But she would say, culturally, it's like we hold sex, marriage, and gender as objects of worship. And just like money, all of those things will make lousy gods. For followers of Jesus, marriage, sex, and gender, they are not gods unto themselves, but they are gifts from God to be stewarded well for his glory. They are not objects of worship. They are tools for worship. We don't have to despise ourselves. We don't have to be filled with self-loathing. We don't have to be filled with all the shoulds of the ways that we should be better, should be more like this, should be more masculine, should be more feminine, all of those things. We can experience a deep love for the way God designed us to be. And that shapes us and molds us, reminds us of our deepest need for God's grace, and then reminds us just how much we have received of his grace. <clears throat> um, so with that, I want to finish like we did last week. I want to read this uh, over us as a prayer. I think when God, when God is at work in us, he turns our suspicion, our defense, our self-righteousness into seeing others. How can, I, how can I serve and love? How do my eyes turn away just from my needs and turn to the needs of others? Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, and so... Let's read this together as a prayer uh, and a call in experiencing the love of Jesus and allowing that then to turn our hearts and our eyes. And listen, I feel like we should, yeah, it's rainy outside, maybe we should just do like Q&A. Um, I don't want to underplay wounds and hurts and bitterness here. I don't want to underplay that. I don't, want, I don't want you to sit here, uh, women, especially women, I don't want you to hear me or even think that I'm saying, ah, you just need to get over it. What I want to tell you, women especially, God is your defender, and he will make right what has been wrong. In, in, in this life or the next, he will make right what has been wronged. Um, 
men, if, and, and here again, if you feel, sometimes I, sometimes I can get really defensive. And I can be like, well, that's not my fault. I'm, you know, um, hear this. You, you need Jesus as much as, as anybody. Like, you can get off the white horse. There's not a call in Scripture for you to ride into town and be the Savior. You can listen and weep. You can ask for help. You can ask for repentance, if this is you. If there's anger there, and, it, and then I've got to qualify this. This is not saying that women don't have sin and women don't have, that, that's not, I'm not saying that either. See how much you have to like go into everybody's court. Um, hear this with humility, allow Jesus to work to turn your eyes, but also listen with compassion to genuine wounds and hurts and fears and concerns. Let me read this over us. Um, as, a, as a prayer from Paul in Philippians. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any, partic- any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Don't work from selfish ambition or conceit. This is not about personal fulfillment. This is not about uh, if Christ is our ultimate fulfillment, be aware of our selfishness. Be aware of when we're working and operating for our, for our own protection or our own uh, uh, pleasure. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Don't only look to what you need, but look to what other people need. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours to possess and take and own in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let me pray for us. God, you are good. You are the one who designed the world, designed the way that it should operate. You are the one redeeming and rescuing the world. And you are the one governing over all of the middle ground between our initial rebellion and the time and day when you make all things new. And that is the world that we live in. There's lots of questions. There are good days. There are bad days. There are joys and there are hurts. There are hard things to be done with glimpses of eternity. Help us in our reactions and overreactions and our limited views and our uh, the ways that we may get defensive. Help us with our indifference or bitterness or uh, maybe some callousness. Continue to grow us to bear the image of Jesus. 
who, though he was God, did not count that as a power play, but took the form of a servant. Help us to be for each other in trusting you, which sometimes means a hug, sometimes means a kick in the pants, sometimes means hard words, and sometimes just means deep, deep abiding encouragement. So we ask this in Jesus. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.